Welcome to King Size, a Stephen King podcast for obsessives by obsessives. With Matt Robinson and Simon Balkan. Welcome back. Welcome back to King Size. And this is our second episode looking at the novel of The Dead Zone. Um, When we last spoke to you, uh, we'd left you with the slick killer, with Johnny uh, frozen in a coma, uh, with Herb having to deal with Crazy Vera and her rapture and her nighttime face cream. Um, And Greg Stilson is still kicking his heels or kicking a dog somewhere so yeah it's all been pretty pretty uh relentless Sai, how are you and where do we find people at the moment my headache's much better thank you oh good um, any well, vision any visions my friend uh yeah well I, I i did have this sudden flash of these two devilishly handsome middle-aged gentlemen <laughs> being worshipped by by l- large crowds of Stephen King fan, but it went really quickly, so I couldn't get any details. I'm sorry. Ah, uh, I know, and and I think you were probably listening to Derry Public Radio, right? <laughs> you know what? That rings a bell. Yeah, that'll be it. Yeah, I seem to have the feeling about Shamray shirts in there, so maybe it probably was there. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm 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 sort of um thinking about you know this journey to the hospital and um. You know, seeing how, seeing if it's as bad as I imagine it is. Yeah. You know, you know, you know the the, the storyline. The mind loves to run. The um the playground. The imagination loves to work in. You know, when you get that call in the middle of the night. Yeah. And you get that that feeling in the in the pit of your stomach. Although there's a there's a point in this um in this section uh sort of right at the end actually where um stephen king talks about sarah and he says her fear coiling lazily in her stomach like cold water it's that that feeling is right at the beginning of this particular section for me Mm. thinking about well how bad can it be i mean i mean i know car accidents are car accidents and it could well be but we've still got an awful lot of book to get through and you can't be dead so what's going on? And I wonder if he gives us a, I was going to say a brief respite, but as we finished the the first section with the um, meeting the killer, it's almost like he goes, I'm just going to take your eye over here for a bit <laughs> because it's got so intense. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's not really respite, obviously the killer section at all. But when we then come back 
it's almost like going back to something. There's no relief to it. It's like, oh, God, now we're going back to the aftermath of the accident. And this wonderful passage King opens with about they all took up the embroidery of their days. Oh, they're just the small little things, just those threads. They keep, you know, they picked up the embroidery and just kept things ticking along. Uh, but everything's out of kilter. Sarah, she always seemed to be looking at him through the wrong end of memory's telescope. Like the balloon man, he was far and we. Everything's just the wrong way around. It's not as it should be. Um, but the collision has happened. So close and yet so far. Yeah. He's sort of right there. Mm. He's a million miles away as well. He's, you know, he's right there in the in the hospital. But to all intents and purposes, he might as well be on the moon. Just can't quite, just, just out of reach. Yeah, yeah. Grating predicament. It's almost, it sounds horrible to say this, but we are talking about fiction. Um, it would almost be better if he had died. And it's okay to say that because that's what Herb says, his own father. No, look, I, I don't have this, the blinkers of religious zealousy to, you know, keep me going. I, I, I'll be honest, I... I wish you, you know, might have been less painful if you had for all of us, especially for you. Um, it's a fairy tale feel to this as well. Sarah talks about as almost as if she can kiss him on the lips and wake him up. Rip Van Winkle, isn't Rip Van Winkle the character in the fairy tales that falls into a long, deep sleep? Yes, he does. Rip Van Winkle is also mentioned in that essay. Ah, really? Yes. Yes, but you're absolutely right. Rip Van Winkle. Mm. Say that one three times quickly after you've had a couple of drinks. <laughs> uh, is the character who is, yes, falls asleep for long, for long periods yeah. of time. And I think sleeps through a very important part of um, American history. The essay will tell me which, which one. It's something like, oh, the, the War of Independence or the Civil War. <laughs> right, okay. And you sleep through a huge, tumultuous period of American history. When they woke up, when they wake up, they've got to catch up on everything. Yeah. Well, um, and the wheels of life are turning. Yeah. As you say, the cloud's still moving. Mm. Um, even if mm. uh, Johnny is not there to to notice it himself and i think there's that thing you said you know what, what where do we go to now what happens after the accident well you know of course we find out that he's in in that coma i can't help thinking god what that locked in syndrome that being in a coma and the world continuing and everything you miss Again, Stephen King having this brilliant ability to make us immediately put ourselves in the shoes or in the bed of that character, thinking, what if it was me? And something about coma that I think lends itself uh, from a purely narrative point of view, it's very intriguing, very um, ironically quite dramatic, even though nothing is happening. <laughs> but the sheer fact that 
um, Johnny is lying there and what are his odds of survival and with every day that passes as he gets weaker and gets more childlike and as we go through this passage just adopting this childlike position of mm. going almost to that fetal position which mm. apparently as the muscles start to atrophy a lot of coma patients do I was reading on the back of this that the longest recorded coma lasted for 37 years. Um, it was a, a lady who fell into a coma in 1941 and she then passed. But the longest coma in which a patient has recovered um, was an individual called Terry Wallace. Um, he was in a coma from um, 1984 when he had a car accident and emerged from that coma in 2003. So in that coma for 19 years, um, and uh, I think obviously recovery, not without challenges, but that's the longest recorded coma from which someone's come round. 19 years. I mean, um, and and the lady you said before had been in for 37. Yeah, and she yeah fell into a coma in 1941 at the age of six and remained in that state. Her name was Elaine Esposito until her passing in 1978. Oh, so she stayed in the the coma. Stayed, yeah, uh, yeah. She didn't emerge from it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Because I was I was thinking if she had, you know, if, she, if that had been the case that she had, she woke, she'd fallen asleep essentially, or fallen into the coma at the age of six in in 1941, when the Second World War is just really <laughs> warming up, to use a grim turn of phrase, and then she wakes up, would Soon. have woken up potentially in the late 70s. Yeah. Can you imagine? If your if your childhood had been basically the world at war and then waking up in the seventies, but anyway, but so nineteen years, uh, nineteen years, yeah, and within narrative, within fiction point of views, taking the coma, there is almost that, as we say, that fairy tale aspect. There's the Sleeping Beauty, you know. We've had we're used to characters that fall into deep sleeps. And th this has that aspect, especially since it's because it's happened to someone who is so benevolent and so kind and so good and just on the promise of so much and kind of on a promise, right? If it hadn't been yeah. for that dodgy hot dog. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah. And, and I find with the Dead Zone in particular, what King is doing is showing us real brutality. And we've just had the passage on the killer and then bringing us to something really sweet and innocent, but so sad. There's a real melancholy that infuses this wintry novel for me. Mm. Um, and then passages where there is heightened comedy. I mean, you know, Vera, the crazy, crazy mum uh, who's in love with the rapture is starting to get influenced by uh, some characters called the stonkers. Yeah. As you might. The Stonkers. Bonkers. What are the Stonkers about then? What's there? What do they want? The Stonkers, are, the Stonkers, I think, in this in this novel are like, yeah, great, you know, come and come live with us. We'll just wait for the final end days and there'll be a rapture. And, you know, I think, you know, God's in a UFO and he's going to send UFOs to take us all up to heaven. And uh, the clues in the name, they're called the Stonkers. Don't believe them. Some of the violence is as you say it's used very sort of um sparingly which probably makes it what makes mm. it so um so punchy 
not all of it is actual um physical violence although there is an aspect of of of, of comedy to it there's there's the argument that herb and vera have um in the in the hospital where she's been starting to sell stuff behind his back i mean i know she's doing it with the best of intentions but basically the house and its contents are being sold out from under him you're not so far gone that you don't know what you're doing he said you don't have that excuse you snuck around behind my back vera you i did not that's a lie i did no such you did he bellowed. Well, you listen to me, Vera. This is where I'm drawing the line. You pray all you want. Praying's free. Write all the letters you want. A stamp still only costs 13 cents. If you want to take a bath in all the cheap, shitty lies those Jesus jumpers tell, if you want to go on with all the delusions and make-believe, you go on. But I'm not a part of it. Remember that. Do you understand me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Do you understand me? You think I'm crazy, she shouted at him. Her face crumpled and squeezed together in a terrible way. She burst into the braying, ugly tears of utter defeat and delusion. No, he said more quietly. Not yet. But maybe it's time for a little plain talk, Vera. And the truth is, I think you will be if you don't pull out of this and start facing reality. You'll see, she said through her tears. You'll see. God knows the truth but waits just as long as you understand that he's not going to have our furniture while he's waiting herb said grimly as long as we see eye to eye on that it's last times she told him the hour of the apocalypse is at hand yeah that and 15 cents will buy you a cup of coffee vera outside the rain fell in steady sheets that was the year herb turned 52 vera 41 and sarah hazlitt 27 Johnny had been in his coma for four years. I really like that that particular passage, that in that exchange between the two of them when it finally reaches ahead. And he and he's that's enough. <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> I've got to draw the line somewhere before yeah. we're on the street, and she's there saying, Oh yes, but it was all past of part of god's plan and i could bloody well strangle you <laughs> yeah exactly well he's not having my bloody furniture all right <laughs> the lord can keep his hands off that sofa that is mine <laughs> i mean just a good man that and that is the thing he's benevolent and kind that's what i get with her but he's certainly not toothless and i love the way that passage reflects that um, beautifully delivered and i also love the passage where king writes about it was always in october that his thoughts turned treacherously to leaving them both i could pack up just throw my things into the back of the pickup and go florida maybe nebraska california a good carpenter can make good money any damn place just get up and go you know he's just very human and yes. you know his son's practically dead to all intensive purposes is wife is completely lost the plot and you just again you just root for him oh i find myself really rooting for him he's the real 
before we start to really meet you know one of the doctors he's the real uh, emotional heartbeat for me in the lack of johnny being able to you know visibly you know ha- have one you know while he's in his coma obviously he's still mm. on his heartbeat but you know what i mean he comes through a heart of the book for me october's such an important month you know the the leaves are turning everything's sort of really starting to change we might get a bit of a treacherous indian summer but we're getting it in in september if it turns up in october it's very very freaky for us mm. um by october um you know that's that's autumn in earnest or at least it it really should be and i get such an autumn and wintry feel from this this story not just in the moments where where we're in we're in the snow but even when we're in the hospital mm, mm. it's like it's summer outside mm. it just feels chilly yes it is it, it feels like eternal in the way that we've spoken often about how we've read certain ones of king's books against a backdrop of temperature and often it seems right um reading Cujo in the summer feels incredibly appropriate as the heat rises in the car and we're there trapped with Donna and Tad reading this book now both wrapped in big jumpers because you know it's the weather is doing its proper thing and it's getting nicely cold and it's not faffing around this book is the perfect perfect book to read at this time and I, I agree with you, even though there might be some shifting in the in the temperature outside the hospital room. For me, it's we're trapped almost in this eternal autumn and and winter. And there's a coldness to it. Oh, yes. For, forever autumn from the War of the Worlds. Ooh, mm. there's, a, there's a sad song for you. There's another sad, sad song. Beautifully sad. And then we have uh, the full circle happening within the book of Sarah delivering her baby, not mm. only on Halloween, mm-hmm. <laughs> but also in the same hospital as Johnny, who just is a few corridors, rooms down, and now in a fetal position and almost like a baby, a child himself. With no language, no speech, no interaction, just in this, you know, Sarah's baby is more alive ironically than than our johnny mm. um, but it just a few floors or bricks separate them from each other and shows just how much she's moved on but she can't quite fully move on interestingly johnny's um first words once he's out of his coma are rather childlike it's the kind of thing that you might expect um, an infant to say when they're sort of uttering their first proper words. And it says, he sort of, you know, he's introduced, sort of introducing himself. Here I am. Johnny Smith croaked to no one at all. Croaked to no one at all. It's, it's, it's such an isolation. Yeah, even, even when he's back in the back in the world he's completely alone yeah and the heartbreaking passage about he looks up and he sees that yellowing picture of jesus and he's like 
there's no cards. And then he said, didn't anyone send me a card? Yeah. <laughs> it just breaks your heart. Hang on a minute. Did it, uh, Wait a minute. Where are my cards? Did no, am I so unlovable? Am I so unloved that no one sent me a card? Not even one. And then that beat that King allows us to have as we see him take that beat of, hang on a minute, no cards, this picture is yellowing, hang on a minute, I'm starting to piece this together out of the fog. How long have I been here for? Mm, Exactly. Christopher Walken's Johnny Smith does it um, slightly differently, but he he has to find his way out of the fog in a very similar way when he sort of, no bandages. Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. like, that was, I do remember that being quite a nasty. I should be in something. Yes. Yeah. So why am I not yeah. covered in bandages? And that's yeah. him starting to come out of the same fog. Yeah. And, and people, nurses, avoiding eye contact. Just, I, I'll just go and get the doctor. I'll wait. You know, we'll, but I can't tell you, I can't break this news to you because it's so colossal. Mm. There's a wonderful moment of irony that happens at that at that moment when um, I think he uh, he Johnny notices that the nurse is looking at him a little oddly, and he basically says, "Well, you know what? What's up? Did I did I grow a third eye?" And that's kind of what he's got, actually. Yes. That's that's sort of what he's got, but he he mean obviously means it literally because he doesn't know exactly what he has got at the moment but it is like a third eye actually yes yeah so this concept is that we're seeing with him it's yeah a third eye it's second sight it's precognition it's this ability isn't it to be able to just see someone or touch someone and know what's going to happen or what is happening to them um I've had <laughs> the smallest, smallest, I mean, we're talking minuscule millionth of a percentage of that in that there's been a couple of times in my life where I know what song is going to be played on the radio. I will yeah. literally, before I turn on the radio, I'll go, I know exactly what I'm going to hear. Again, that's pure bloody chance that I wouldn't wager any money on it. But this idea of, second sight and premonitions and it being more than just gut instinct or a hunch or a feeling it's powerful stuff where where do you where do you um where do you sit on the whole thing well it makes you think doesn't it (laughs) good answer (laughs) yeah i don't mm, i'm not falling on either side of the the argument or fence because i just don't know Mm. I mean, you know, it's like um, it's like when we rehearsed Hamlet about I don't know ten, twelve years ago, and the we were we were talking about ghosts. Yeah, we were talking about ghosts, um, and we were about to start rehearsal, and we were rehearsing in a crypt. And before we actually went into the crypt, the director was sort of talking to us and says, "Right, okay, I've so who, seen who doesn't believe in ghosts?" Different hands. Okay, who's not sure? Okay, well, if you're not sure go down into the crypt where it's still dark and just be in there for a few minutes and then see how you feel. Is it all bunkum or is there something? Because I th- there's something. 
I don't know what it is. I don't. I think that if if we're able, if we're still here, you know, in a thousand years to to look back on our ourselves, whatever civilization is still around would look back and go, they thought that was this, mm. this, mm. whatever this is, whether or not it's a science thing, we just haven't um, articulated yet, or if there is something something else which in a thousand years time perhaps we'll all be used to mm. that thing that we which we call premonition or second sight or instinct or whatever whatever it is but as you say you have that feeling that is quite certain and mm. and positive about what you're going to hear on the radio and you turn the radio on and lo and behold there it is and actually there's a part of you that goes, told you, that's just not surprised. So what is that? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I'm not going to pretend I do. Yeah. Um, but it's something that's so, so common mm. that it has to be something. Yeah. And expert practitioners, people like Darren Brown, are very open about actually, you know, a lot of that comes from... Uh, audience manipulation and clues and hooks and asking the right questions and reading the right signs. And obviously someone like him is a master upon it. And he's very open about, you can explain why this happens. You're just incredibly skilled. Obviously there have been lots of tricksters that have jumped upon it. And again, this is what, you know, this sense with Johnny of some people go, hang on, this is for real. But it seems here that it's just, it's not something and where did it where did it come from with him did it was it that knock on the ice right back when he was a kid that shifted something that allowed him to have this insight but dramatically it's a fascinating idea you know from just being able to be around someone and with the nurse be able to be able to know that okay your son is about to have that operation on his eye and then, of course, it really comes to the forefront in the incredible, incredible passage to 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 the doctor. Yes, um, that that we'll we'll get to in a moment. That really, really, he, he shows us his insight and his skill, and his blessing and his curse. Um, but just before we get to that, there's again the rise of Herb. You you've shared it a little bit in that wonderful example where her really really you know reads Vera the riot act in in a loving way but a firm way. King's dialogue here it's just astonishing. You tell him that you love him, that you prayed, waited, watched. Who has a better right? You're his mother. You bled for him. Haven't I watched you bleed for him over the last five years? I'm not sorry he's back with us. You were wrong to say that. I don't think I can make of it what you do, but I'm not sorry. I bled for him too. That really, really got me. Uh, just this humble man versus this hot militant joy and rapture. Yeah, I bled for him too. I bled for him too. And it seems to be at that moment that really cuts through to her because then when she sat with Johnny 
as she's coming out of this fog. Johnny describes her as more mother than madness. Mm. Which again, just testimony to the complexity of these characters that I just don't view Vera as this villain or this comedy character to be dismissed. Or I think she's very scared and being taken advantage of and very lost. And, but she hasn't forgotten how to still be his mum in those moments. And that little tender moment of, she just was like, look, it's okay to cry. I think probably that's the best thing to do. And he just mm-hmm. cries. It's a really tender, beautiful moment. Yeah, I agree. I think it would be a mistake to um, to write Vera off in that in that yeah. way. Um, yeah. I think she's more, in some ways, I think she's probably more complicated and more nuanced than somebody somebody like Mrs. Carmody. Because really, yeah. in fairness, you don't really get much of Miss Carmody's background. No, you don't get as much um, time, and you don't spend as much time with her as a reader as you do with Vera. Yeah. Um, the Mist is a novella. This is a novel, so there's less time to sort of really go into detail. Um, but I also think that actually on paper, you look at Herb and you look at Vera and you go, how on earth would these two people end up together? <laughs> I think in a sense, they're actually probably pretty good for one another. Yeah. It's a sort of almost, almost perhaps a chalk and cheese kind of thing, but they kind of, kind of temper each other to a degree. I mean, you know, as you've mentioned, Herb has this conversation with himself where we think, well, I, I could just, I could just go. But I think it's a lot of the virtues and the um, the values that Vera has and that she's um, displayed, demonstrated over the years that give her more of that anchor. And it's Herb's more sort of practical, worldly, reasonable stance that keeps Vera from going all sort of amongst too much of the crazies. So actually, um, to quote another one, it is in fact a good marriage. And he thinks of her at moments in her madness, even when she is pushed to the edge at her most vulnerable, at her most lost there's a couple of references where she reminds him of how she looked on their wedding day. Mm. And there's still a tenderness there. And the fact that it takes a while for him to actually raise his voice and really kind of go, hang on a minute. Right. No, no, no. Enough. Yeah. yeah as you say, I've got to draw the line. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they are, as well as mine. Yes. We will come back from the hospital when visiting hours, which do apply, when we go home, we won't have a home because you'll have sold it from under our roof. Uh, so I have to draw the line there. But there's a tenderness and a love there um, that is is really powerful watching this couple go through the greatest heartache. Um, and again, just a complete, you know, Mother Carmody doesn't have a herb to, to to be able to shine light on the goodness of her. She's much more, as you say, it's, you know, a novella and it's almost a standalone, almost like a plot device to, to be able to real for us to real realize the monsters are worse within than they're outside in the mist. This mm. feels there's the time for it to be more rounded. And yeah, we spent a great deal of the last couple of episodes talking about the Herb and Vera relationship. Mm. It's not just a, sideline or a side plot or a bit of history it's really really matures and develops and, and and king really spends his time portraying 
the complexities of of love and sacrifice and parenthood here i think mm. really powerful. absolutely and i think it's 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 very it's very good and it's a sign i think of a good intelligent writer that not everybody that has you know religious views is is inherently dangerous yes. um or inherent or, or written off as a lunatic they are in a, in a, in a number of of characters but to be honest it's it's less um the fact that you know it's not always about religion it's about what they're single-minded and crazy about yeah one thing that won't leave room for any other kind of possibility or or um or option or discussion or or, or anything but in, in in the case of vera it's good that you know she has a faith um she's very she's very passionate about it but sometimes it does sort of drag her off a little bit in in the wrong direction which is when she needs herb yes um, but it's, it's good that we have a character that has this, but but isn't just isn't just a villain or dangerous. Um, because I'm I'm quite sure that um, at, at some point um, in this novel or another one, a character will present themselves as a, as a, as a good God fearing Christian folk, and they'll be the ones you don't invite to dinner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there will be many wolves that are loose. Yes. Um, which brings us to that phenomenal passage, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it, where we really see Johnny in full flow, really, really bringing that second sight to the fore. And for me, it was where I see that lovely style of king i've always been a fan of when he writes in parentheses and goes in italics and we mm -hmm. go into the mind of a character and we go to the inner workings and he's allowed to lose all grammar there because it's often a stream of consciousness and character whip whipping themselves into a frenzy and we see him using that that style that is so stephen king whenever i read any other author and i see the similar style being used it immediately harks me back to king um, mm -hmm. so that use of italics the parenthesis classic there um and, and it happens here quite prolonged this episode it's not just a brief flash it's a really pivotal moment mm. what was your what was your take on on, on this corner cornerstone of, of this section it's achieved in the film very very quickly very succinctly but that's the virtue of the the visual image. It, it it can do that, but it's so much more satisfying on the page when it's um, described over a number of pages, and it really takes its time because it seemed to take its time. But for Johnny, it's happening in an instant. It all comes rushing in. All of this narrative, all of these um, these images are not particularly nice ones either. So. What I think that this passage reminds me of is actually just how traumatic some of these experiences can be, depending on who he is, um, who, who he's got physical contact with. So with the nurse, it's very sort of, oh, your boy's going to be fine. Actually, one operation and it cleared up and that um, incident he had with the with the firework, he's going to be all right. It's good news. Um 
But this, I mean, it is this is kind of going the long way round to good news. Because what he has to re-experience himself, and he's literally there, isn't he? Yeah. He's there in the book and he's and he's there in the film. He's there. Yes, and we are there as the reader, aren't we? We are absolutely transported immediately to the war and that moment and that, yeah. When it was, and, and, it, and I love that these are the some of the details that the, the film selected. The wolf is loose in Europe. The boy is safe. The boy is safe. I really like the definition. We just need that, and we need that, yeah, and we yeah. need this picture, and then we can yeah. move on. And I don't. I think that the fact that the film is so, um, so relatively short, is a testament to its ability to really distill all of the detail that's in the novel, to sort of bring it down to its its essence, because it can't you know, run for as long as it would take us to read. That's just not practical. So it has to find a way to do that. But what it what it does to achieve that is to select specific details from the novel, from the source material that's already there. It doesn't need to fabricate too much at all. It just needs to be its own thing. But it's going to take this, this and this. And that that is going to have to work for us because we don't have the luxury of time and we're a different medium. But it's, it's as you say, it's, it, it's written kind of like a, like a rush on a roller coaster. Yeah, yes. You know, it's this and this and this and this and this. Yeah, yeah. Or, or as I should say, a rush on a roller coaster that happens to be a ghost train. <laughs> Because it's it, it it all seems to happen at, at, at night, and it's all of the, it was such a horrific thing that it's it's harkening back to. Um, because you know, right at the beginning of the Second World War, by that point, the um, the German army seemed absolutely unstoppable. It was just this military behemoth that could seemingly walk across borders at will. So the wolf was loose in Europe and it had kind of been tugging and an off the leash once or twice by that point already but this was really was the you know Nazism um beginning to really get into its its stride and to be caught in the path of that I think is is terrifying so it's it's um it's brilliant that that is the moment that um Stephen King chooses to elaborate on historically and make it very very personal see that that i think is also brilliant it's not just about the um the the macrocosm it's about the the microcosm as well this is sam's sam's stories is sam vizak's story because it's about really about one individual yeah but in the context of this huge this global historical event couldn't agree more that that moment of the mum and the hip being shattered and then being thrust, you know, smashed against the glass, thrown into the store. And then actually it's like, no, she's not, she's not dead. I mean, it's such a powerful, vivid moment. And you're so right. I mean, telescope and microscope, <laughs> that's how he's using this typewriter. And, and that's it. The characters, all of them, there's, they're, they're so invested in what is happening to them. There's such, so much at stake. Uh, so much on the personal front. Um, and it deepens that in that moment, instead of 
the doctor writing him off. Yeah, he listens to him and he makes that call. Can't mm. can't go through with it once she, once his mum picks up, but it's enough for him to know it's her. And their trust, their relationship is cemented there. And it follows on in a beautifully as fervent as and feverish as this exchange is. That beautiful moment then when Johnny is going under the knife and he's not going to have general anaesthetic because that's too dangerous on the back of his coma and everything. So local anaesthetic, but having wires put into his joints and his ligaments and a, a needle <laughs> the size of a house, you know, put into his spine and really, oh God, it's horrible. And you feel him in real pain with that. And he just says to, why is that? Wear something so I know that it's you. Mm. You know, knowing that he's going to be there watching Johnny have the operation. And it's again, that lovely childlike quality. Just, just wear something so I know you're there. And of course, Wysak says, of course, and wears his, his, his watch, doesn't he, out, mm. you know, um, to let him know that he's there and he's got someone rooting for him and he's safe. Again, I just felt this crushing loneliness. And the irony is that, you know, he's trying to reunite people. You know, a lot of his visions are with the nurse, with, with the son, with, with, with the eye operation to go, it will be okay. I can't wait to tell you the good news about this with Sam to say, look, you know, your mum is still alive. If you want to, you can be reunited. <laughs> oh, when he has some of these visions, it's about uniting people and mm. bringing them together. Yet he is so lonely. It is such a strangely, ironically, solitary position. Mm that he is he's in really by say by no fault of his own almost he's almost being punished for um for decency for doing the right thing yeah just a couple of final thoughts for me on this is it's such a physical as well as emotional and psychological book and i've read a couple of reviews that are one from james smith in the guardian saying it's a more literary novel about rehabilitation and loss Absolutely. Those, those themes are there. But it's such a physical novel as well, from that vision that Johnny has uh, uh, of the Second World War to the operations that he has to go under to, you know, the lack of dignity, the loss of dignity. He's often crying. He's wetting himself. He can't walk to the headaches that are then keep appearing that he gets, that Sarah gets. Just as we saw the headaches happening you know, to Stilson and, and and Johnny in the opening. You know, again, when he's able to bring that vision and Sarah in that frenzy looks and it's true, finds the wedding ring mm. that she thought she'd lost. And Johnny's like, I know exactly where it is and I'll tell you where it is. Again, she feels ill, feels headachey. And we really, as you mentioned, you just feel the cost of all of these moments that he has to live it's has a real real impact on someone who's already just incredibly vulnerable um yes there's that, that there's that strong physical reaction yeah to the discovery of the um 
discovery of the ring. There's that huge, there's a very important physical reaction that she has when she realizes Johnny is awake. Where, like Richie Tozier, on getting unexpected, potentially traumatic news, he vomits. She vomits. Yeah. They're both sick. They've, you know, it's the body having to literally um, evacuate something as quickly yeah. as possible. And, ooh, get that out. Yeah. Which tells you just how strong, I think, her connection with him still is, just like as, as the strength yeah. of the connection between the losers, in that case, Richie to Derry is, there's this really strong connection to Johnny still. As much as she might be able to change her circumstances, that's still there. Yes. And and she she gives him a kiss on the mouth, doesn't she? She's still drawn to him, attracted yeah. to him. And even after she's looked for the ring and she she's found it and she's in a bit of a frenzy herself and you know her cheeks are flushed and she's physically really as we say this is a physical novel there's that lovely little phrase about king right so let's face it gang she looks hot <laughs> you know there's still there's something sexual there's that sexual tension in the air because obviously they, they never got to have that it's up to now it's been a chaste relationship mm. She was fond of him. He was in love with her. They had this evening a dodgy hot dog and then a, a horrific car crash soon put pay to that. So there's this chaste relationship between them. But there's still that charge, that pull. Mm. They didn't because they didn't part on their own terms. No, but they didn't get really to sort of decide for themselves to go their separate ways. They were kind of wrenched apart, pulled apart by by events. By events, by fates, by yeah. Yeah, exactly. By yeah, whatever you want to what yeah. you want to call it. Um and I think it's really important they didn't do it on their own their own terms. Yeah. So they didn't get to say, no, this is this is the end. We've had we've had enough or whatever. We yeah. want to move on. Yeah. But it, it kind of feels like no 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 no. I want to go back I didn't say goodbye. There's unfinished business here. Really important yes. business. Yeah. And I get that very strongly at this moment. It's this story has got legs in it between Sarah and Johnny. It's not, look, son, she's moved on. She's married. She's got a kid. That's it. Okay. That's another sad subplot for Johnny. No, there's it's absolutely. They haven't finished it or said goodbye on their terms. I think I say I think Christopher Walken expresses it so poignantly when he sees Sarah um, in kind of the day room of the hospital when he, he and he says, um, you know, it was last night for me. Yeah. My feelings haven't changed at yeah. all. It's five years for you, but it, it's yesterday. Yeah. I feel about you exactly the same way I did. I'm still head over heels in love with you. I'm still crazy about you. Yeah. And it, for him, it's like she's died. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because yes. the woman that he, he, he was in love with is no yeah. more, really. She even looks different. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she starts to, just such a wonderful bit of dialogue where she starts to talk about her new husband and, and he just cuts her off. He's like, you know, I'd, I'd rather talk about your son. 
Yeah, look, I really don't want to go there. I'm not ready for that. I don't think I'll ever be ready for that. But especially when I've just come out of a coma for nearly five years. And for me, it is just yesterday. And you're the woman I love. I don't want to hear about your new guy. I will help you find your wedding ring, though. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) But that sort of information... That he gives her, he 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 gets by the, well by not really wanting it. Yeah. I mean, again, he didn't seek it, did he? He doesn't select what um, what visions he gets in association with the people he's in contact with. He doesn't sort of get their entire life and go right. I'm going to give them that bit because I think that's the yeah. really juicy good bit. He get he, he gets what he gets. He has no control over over that. Um, I'm sure there's a Greek myth that um, that relates to that in in some way. Um, it's a bit like Cassandra, I think, who was um, a, a priestess in the in the Trojan Wars, and she is gifted with the power of accurate foresight. So her visions are always true, but she's cursed in that nobody ever believes her. Please feel free feel free to correct me on that mythological fact. I'm pretty sure it's Cassandra that sees everything coming, including the Trojan War, and nobody, nobody. ever believes her, but she's right every time. Yes. So mythology, fairy tales, fables, they're all sewn up in this story. I mean, our good old friend the monkey's paw makes mm-hmm. an appearance. Not for the first time, as we know, the basis for the monkey and skeleton crew and this story, this, you know, this portionary tale is told in it as well. But for those that can't remember, the monkey's paw, um, W.W. Uh, Jacob's story, this old couple had wished for 100 pounds. The paw was for wishing, but the price you paid for each of your three wishes was a black one. An old couple had wished for £100, lost their son in a mill accident. The mill's compensation had come to exactly £100. Then the old woman had wished for her son back, and he had come. But before she could open the door and see what a horror she had summoned out of its grave, the old man had used the last wish to send it back. As Wysak said, maybe some things were better lost than found. Yeah, absolutely. Some things are ultimately better off gone yeah better not seen better lost than found so it's a real cautionary tale here and that sadness of johnny just you're gonna have to move on with your life but but you haven't yet said goodbye so is it just lost or or is there something to be found again again with the vision of sam that your mum is still alive well that's that's in the past do i go through with that and we see he doesn't you know, he just picks up the phone. Maybe he he will connect at a later stage, but some things are, it's the butterfly effect again, isn't it? It's what Johnny's doing. He's, he's meddling and messing with the passage of time, ironically, for someone who has <laughs> been frozen in time for nearly five years. Yeah, I think Sam is a lot more certain and he shows an awful lot more control than I probably would. But he seems quite sure that some things just weren't meant to be. Yeah. And he appreciates if he'd not crossed paths with Johnny, this would this information would never have been known to him. Yeah. Um 
and something and there's something in, in inside him which I think is insists quite strongly that for whatever reason he should continue as he as he has already been without her yeah whether or not he's right is completely up for debate mm. um I'd really love to hear from anybody that that says absolutely completely stone cold no I'd I'd have def I'd have talked to her I don't have any doubt in my mind whatsoever that if I I was in Sam Vizak's position I wouldn't have hung up I definitely would have re-established contact oh yeah absolutely a hundred percent a hundred percent a hundred percent but he is in the absence of Herb you know because obviously the curb can't stay in the hospital when Herb and Vera go back we we are presented with a almost a father figure in Vizak mm. again a benevolent person looking out for Johnny and I almost get the sense of the author as God just going look He's been through a lot. I'm not going to just leave him on his own, surrounded by the other doctors that don't really like him or care for him or think he's a freak. I have to have somebody there that will bring out that tenderness and the sweetness and to stop him just being bitter. Mm. Yeah, and angry all the time. Yeah. There has to. What if for you, though? Just to go yeah. back. To to make to re-establishing the contact, what if you know that came at a terrible, terrible price? Mm. Well, what, if, it, what if, if they were you know the the contact was re-established yeah. and the mother says, "Oh, I'm so so one so fantastic, wonderful. I'm so I'm going to take a journey right now and I go and see you." And she's killed on the journey. Yeah, exactly. It's the monkey's paw. That's mm. why King puts that in there. Mm. You have your wishes, but there's a black one. It comes at a cost. Yeah, exactly. Sam has this incredible calm wisdom of like, look, I on a day-to-day -day level, nothing's changed, really, even though the biggest news is, you know, your mum is still alive. He's like, well, uh, what difference is that going to make? It, uh, you know, I know it. I don't know it. What is that? I might be meddling with something that exactly might have a catastrophic ending. Yeah, the butterfly effect. It's all yes. very, very delicate. Yeah. And it really doesn't take very much at all to have a profound effect. Yeah. In in the film where he takes hold of the nurse's hand, one of the first things where he wakes up and he sees the house fire and he feels the house fire. Your daughter is in that house fire right now. She's screaming for you. She's calling out your name. And again, she listens in that in the film mm. and rushes home. If she weren't to, if she was to go, look, I no, this is this makes no sense. Then the monkey's paw slaps you around the face in a different way. Mm -hmm. It's like I, I told you. <laughs> in the same way, the ice is going to break in the film. What? And you're not going to listen? What? What more can I do? You know. You know that reminds me of another joke slash tale. Okay, I think uh, I know what I think I know where you're going to go. Is this the guy with the that lives in the valley? Please tell me. I love it. Yes, man lives in a valley. Listens to the radio one day. Gets a weather forecast saying there's a storm coming, a big one. The valley's going to flood. Guy ignores it completely. Says the good Lord will save me. 
Lo and behold, the storm comes, the valley floods, and the man has to start living on the first floor of his house, at which point a boat comes along and says, climb aboard, we'll get you out of the valley, it's going to flood all the way soon. Man says, no, I'll be fine, the good Lord will save me. The storm continues, the man has to evacuate to the roof of his house, and a helicopter flies over and says, we'll lower a rope for you, hold on to the rope, we're going to fly you out of the valley or else you're going to drown. Man says, no, I'll be fine, the good Lord will save me. The storm breaches its zenith, the waters rise and the man man drowns. He finds himself at the gates of St. Peter um, and the man's pretty damn grumpy and complains to St. Peter and says, I drowned in my valley. I thought the good Lord will save me. St. Peter throws down his quill and says, the good Lord sent you a weather forecast, a boat and a helicopter. What are you doing here? <laughs> yeah meddling with fate with time with coincidence with nightmares with dreamscapes it's all happening here and this section is very much for me johnny his waking up his re-emergence from this cocoon the impact the the family picking up the embroidery of their days and their lives and sarah's moving on but not being able to move on but still within that we have these couple of little chapters that lurk. One is the sprinkling of just reminding us, look, um, the Castle Rock Strangler is still at large. Mm. The Carol Dunbarger, victim number four, um, two years on from the last one. So the Castle Rock Strangler is still at work in that scene where the boys discover her amongst you know, the snow and the ice. Mm. Um, just reminding us, look, there's this boiling away as well it wasn't just some drifter that we nailed this on no 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 it's still going on to ramp up the unease and then the other chapter that i found really intriguing because it almost works as a little standalone short story mm. is the lightning rod mm. <laughs> <laughs> again almost similar to what you the joke you just shared look um, i've i'm here i know you think i'm a salesman but really I, i'm not sure this is the safest place to be in and i've got something here i've just really just come for a beer honest gov i have just genuinely come for a beer but while we're at it i've got something here that could potentially save many lives but just put it out there Okay, yeah. fine. All right, all right. Laugh all you want. Lap it up. I'll have another beer. This next one, I'm not going to get one for you. Fine. But um, again, what a... Does the job. Yeah. Does the job. Great little chapter. Really intriguing. I was like, well, where's this come from? And now that we're wrapping it up with some of these other cautionary tales, I'm starting to think of how it might, you know, nothing is just put there randomly there's a reason for every it feels like si in this book in particular because the structure is so tight it feels like every single moment is put there for a reason and i know king says i don't outlie i don't plan i sit down i write and characters start to evolve i'm fine mythology or just you know ramping up his reputation whatever it may be but I read this and I go, that's either just genius because it's so tight, the structure and the plot. Um, or it's like, you have to have planned this. But again, that's why he's Stephen King. 
Well, I think that's, yeah, that's a wonderful place to start, that kind of freedom where you start with a, a vision or a kernel of an, an idea or something that excites you and you just see what happens. But then surely that's what um, that's what we what rewriting is for. In his case, whilst doing it, it's a very loud, heavy metal music. But then he goes back and then, as you say, then all the craft, the further craftsmanship. Yeah, or he sort of takes the fat out and it becomes more economical I think mm. I don't know exactly how he rewrites but I know he does rewrite yeah yeah very and, and uh, when we interviewed Jamie Jamie Stewart um, mentioned brilliant, brilliant uh, horror writer mentioned about doing the bones draft the first draft is blah, it's just all out there the bones draft and then you start to go back in and refine um, yeah, similarly to, to, to working with a script once I get a get a script i i assume that the writer has agonized over every exclamation mark every full stop every contraction every non-contraction everything so i assume if you know if a character interrupts me with one word that's that's meant to happen there's a reason for that um so it's exactly the same with with this writing there's a reason for all of the, the chapters being put in the place, place that they are. There's a reason why we get Frank Dodd at this point, or when we go back yeah. to Johnny and spend time with him for this amount of time. I always just, I assume that it's all deliberate. Yes. And at this moment, the wolf is loose still. Very different wolf. And the boy, Johnny, is safe for the moment. What happens next? Well, nobody stays safe for very long, particularly in uh, in a novel like this. So we'll have to see how safe or unsafe he and others become. But he has just come out of his coma. He is awake and he is back in the world. But remember, coma is a rather negative way to say it. I prefer to think of it as one more sleep till Santa. King Size was written and presented by Matt Robinson and Simon Balkan. Edited and produced by Matt Robinson. Music, Storm Coming by Last Picture Show, available on Spotify. Find us on Instagram at King Size Podcast. If you like what you hear, please drop us a review and subscribe to the show.